Today's going to be one of those big picture messages. I love big picture messages because they they really help me, and hopefully they'll help you to keep from getting lost. Because it's very important to not get lost, and one of the reasons we do get lost sometimes is because we don't see the whole forest. If you think of the Bible as a forest, it's it's a big book, a very big book, and it's easy to get lost. And so before you go walking around a forest, sometimes it's really a good idea to get a bird's eye view, in this case a plane's eye view. So uh, this will hopefully, hopefully keep you from getting lost. Any of you ever been lost in the forest? You say, oh, I know, I know. Some people jokingly say, but I knew where I was. I just didn't know the, where my vehicle was or whatever, you know, didn't know how to get out. I knew where I was the whole time, right? But it, it, it can be very easy to get lost, especially the forest is a big one like that one on the screen there. And so kind of what I want to do is kind of just take you in the airplane with me, and that's just climbing up in the airplane up to about 10,000 feet, so to speak, and get, kind of get the big picture of this forest we call the Bible. And then... Uh, you know, that way we won't get lost when we're walking around the forest looking at the trees. So Jesus helps us here in Luke 24 to kind of get a big picture, help us understand a little bit more about the Bible. So look at Luke 24. Luke 24, by the way, let me encourage you, uh, maybe something for the month of December, since there's uh, 24 days before Christmas. Uh, may I suggest you take one one chapter out of the book of Luke, and then by the time you get to Christmas, you'll understand why Jesus came the first time. So just you read one chapter a day during the month of December. Uh, there's 24 chapters. Maybe that'll be a good idea. You don't have to, but it's a good idea. So look what Jesus says, Luke 24, verse 27. Uh, by the way, the context here is, uh, is uh, after his resurrection, he's already died, of course, he's resurrected, he's meeting some disciples here. He's walking on this road. These disciples were walking on the road to a place called Emmaus. And they're discouraged because they didn't understand what's going on. They think Jesus is dead. And so uh, Jesus meets them, these two disciples. Look what he says in verse 27. It says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, in this context, the, uh, the scriptures here is, of course, referring to the Old Testament. That's all there was at this point. So Jesus is interpreting the Old Testament, that Old Covenant, for these guys here. Hopefully, the, uh, eventually their eyes are going to be open. They're going to understand who Jesus is. Why did he come the first time? And this is a really helpful lesson, a very good helpful lesson for them. And then look what he says again in verse 44. Verse 44, then he said to them, these same two guys, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then look what happens. Their spiritual eyes are open in verse 45. Spiritual eyes are open. Their minds are open to understand the Scriptures. They understood. What did they understand? Verse 46. 
Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. (laughs) So, that's good news. So Jesus, by the way, notice in verse 44, he mentions the three divisions of the Old Testament. He mentions... uh, in his day, it was considered, uh, uh, by the way, the Psalms there was not just referring to the book of Psalms, but referring to all the poetical books, so starting in Job through Ecclesiastes. So those are the three divisions that many of the Jews in Jesus' day thought. That's how they thought of the Old Testament, so that's why he says that. But uh, typically today, we, we think of the Bible broken up in its genres. Genre is just a literary style. And so you'll see on this, uh, uh, this next slide here, there's the genres for you. Uh, in the Old Testament, you have uh, the first five books of the Bible, typically called the Pentateuch. Pentateuch just means five Tuch books. So you've got the five books of Moses. And then you come to the next part of your Bible, that's the historical books. Not hysterical. That's something totally different. It's not meant to be funny. Uh, these are historical books about Israel, primarily. It does mention other nations. And then you come to the uh, part of your Bible, which are the poetical books. They're Hebrew poetry. And then the Old Testament ends with the prophetic books, the prophets' writings there. And by the way, you should note as you as you do read your Bible, it's not in chronological order, right? It's it's broken up into these these groupings here. So if that messes with your brain, uh, there is such a thing as a chronological Bible, and if you're used to reading it how we typically have it, the chronological Bible might mess with your brain. It certainly it certainly did for me, and it certainly did for my wife. Uh, so it did for you guys as well. So when you're, I mean, you're jumping around from you know First Kings, and you're then you're in the Psalms, and then you're then you're over in a prophet, and then you're back into Second Kings, and then you're in Chronicles, and then you're oh you're back in a prophet again, and you're just it, you're all over the place. It's, whew, wow, you feel like you're on one of those roller coasters getting thrown all over the place. But that's fine. You uh, you might you might find that helpful. Just please understand, it's not chronological. It's in genre. So then you come to your New Testament, and it's kind of a similar situation. It's in the genres. It's starting with the Gospels. and uh, So you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John there. And then you come to the New Testament historical book called Acts. And the epistles are just the letters written by mostly, well, I think all the, well, mostly uh, apostles. And then the last book of the Bible is Revelation. So 66 books total, all by the same author, the Holy Spirit, who used uh, some 40 different uh, humans to, to write it. So that's a, that's a very quick overview. But it, So I just, I just wanted you to see that so you understand where we're going. That's kind of the outline, the quick outline we're going to use today. So let's first of all look at the Old Covenant or the Old what we typically call a testament. So a testament, by the way, just means it's, it's an agreement, it's a covenant that God made with his people. So in the old covenant, God made the promises, and in the new covenant, 
we see how those promises are kept. So let's start with the Pentateuch. And then uh, you'll see uh, what I want to do is just kind of, kind of help you understand sort of what Jesus was doing with those two disciples as he's walking with them on the road to Emmaus. And hopefully your spiritual eyes will be open and, and hopefully help you understand the scriptures to see what was Jesus talking about there in Luke 24. So Jesus believed in the Pentateuch, these five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Of course, the human being whom the Holy Spirit used was Moses, uh, the first there of those prophets. So that's, uh, I'm going to be jumping around, so get your fingers walking, starting with the very first verse in your Bible. And some have said, if you don't believe the first verse in the Bible, how can you believe anything else in the Bible? Very important verse. And notice how God begins his Bible here. Genesis 1.1. Very first verse in the Bible. He doesn't attempt to defend himself. God just says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as we heard earlier, that is of great debate. <laughs> this particular verse is, might be one of the most hotly debated verses in all the Bible. When did that happen? Because God just says in the beginning. He doesn't give you a date. At this point in time, there was no B.C. and A.D. and that sort of stuff. Well, it's interesting. Uh, the, the Jews actually date the beginning. I should say some Jews. Not all would believe this. But uh, some Jews would date the beginning of the universe at 3,760 B.C. I, I tend to prefer more of uh, what James Usher, who is a Christian from England, or the U.K., who was a uh, church leader many years ago. Anyway, he dated it at 4,004 B.C. Nevertheless, notice they're still very young, so obviously young earth creationists here. So we're looking at approximately 6,000 years ago, right? So that's how the Bible begins, but what is the content of these five books? If you, if you think big picture with me here, what is the content? Well, you got 613 laws, <laughs> going Genesis to Deuteronomy. So some people only think of the Ten Commandments. Well, there's way more than that. In fact, 613 total laws that God gave to Israel. By the way, it's not for you. Not for you. Well, Jesus did repeat nine of those Ten Commandments. But most of those 613 laws are not for you. And the other part of the content you need to understand is uh, there's a lot of content on the whole sacrificial system that God gave to Israel, especially in the book of Leviticus. So a lot, a lot about the sacrificial system there. And some people say, well, why is this needed? Why all this information on sacrifices? And the answer is, because it was impossible for anybody to keep all 613 laws, except Jesus, of course. The only one who could keep all those. Nobody could keep that, all 613. But praise God, God is a merciful and gracious God who nevertheless understands us, knows our weaknesses, and gave us sacrifices. That's why you need those. 
And so, in fact, uh, if you read, especially the book of Leviticus, you'll find there were five major sacrifices. You say, well, what's the point of it, it, with all of this law stuff and the sacrifices? Why did God do this? Why did God give it? Well, the pointed issue is one word, holiness. And the reason I say holiness is, is the whole point is because over 200 times in the Pentateuch, you will find the word holy or holiness. It is the major theme in those five, first five books of your Bible. And don't again, don't just think of holy or holiness as God. You know, it means for you to be sinless. That's not primarily what it means. But the idea is that uh, God wanted His people to be separate from the world. He wanted them to be unique. He wanted them to be a light to the nations. And see, if you're just dark like the rest of the world, then you're not separated and unique at all. And so the reason for the giving, by the way, of of those laws is so that the people would become in their practice what God is in His own character. And that's why God says in Leviticus chapter 11, when He was speaking to Israel there, He said to be holy, what? Be holy as I am holy. That's what God says. To to be separate and unique and distinct like I am. There there is nothing and no one else like God. And so God wanted His people to be different. Not just like the rest of the world. He wanted them to be unique. Set apart. Well, as I said, nobody could keep all 613 laws. So since that was impossible, then some people say, well... Why all those sacrifices? Remember, there's at least five major sacrifices. Why? And to answer that question, let me give you another question that will answer that question. What happened in those sacrifices? When Israel made those sacrifices, what happened in every sacrifice? The answer is, blood was shed. Blood was shed. And what was the point of the shedding of blood? Well, when blood was shed, the the animal died. God was showing you that the wages of sin is death. Death had to be the payment for sin. (laughs) Why was the blood shed? It was it was showing uh, God was sorry God was showing that death was required, and of course it was all leading up to something which I'll point out to you in a moment. But some people look at all this, the the laws and the sacrifices and the shedding of blood and say, well, did did the blood actually cleanse away sin? Well, Hebrews tells us no. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Well, if that's the case, then why do, you, why do we need to read these books today? Why do we need to read these books today? Well, they should cause something to happen inside you. They, they should cause some feelings to rise up within you. They should cause you to long for something. They should cause our hearts to long for the perfect sacrifice offered by the perfect priest. See, Jesus is that, of course, that 
perfect priest whom he was talking about in Luke chapter 24. And so the function of the first five books of your Bible here is to show the need for a perfect priest. See all those Levites mentioned in the book of Leviticus? All that content, laws and sacrifices? Didn't work in one sense because they weren't perfect priests. But it should cause us, and it should have caused them to long for the perfect priest. So that's why God wants to continually illustrate that we need a substitutionary atonement for our sin. See, you and I can't save ourselves. And do you know why you can't save yourself? It's because you're a sinner. You were born a sinner. So there is no hope on, on, on your, by yourself, that is, of saving yourself. You need one who is perfect. You need a perfect priest. And of course, as you read those books, it should cause you to long for the coming of the perfect priest. Well, then you come to the second genre in the Old Testament. That's the historical books, obviously starting with Joshua going all the way to Esther. So what are these books about? Well, look at Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. So obviously you come to your sixth book in your Bible. By the way, you'll often notice if you read the first verse in those books and the last verse in the book, you get a pretty good idea what's the book about. So that's what we're going to do, okay? So look at Joshua chapter 1. So this is the beginning of the historical books, and here's what it says. Joshua 1, verse 1, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, Yahweh said to Joshua, the son of Nun, who is Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. So notice two things. This will help you understand the content of the historical books. So notice it is about a people and their land. It is about a country, a group of people, the Hebrews, what we call Israelis, okay, and their land. And by the way, this is still relevant for today. God still has a people. God still has a land for his people Israel. It does not belong to the Palestinians or anybody else who wants to claim it. It is Israel's land. So, if you think of the content, particularly in the book of Joshua, it's how did Israel get the land? So it's about Israel and their land. Well, how did they get it? This is how they got it. By the way, as you read this book, how do you feel when you read the book of Joshua? It should cause you to feel something. You should have some emotions. Well, if you're like me, uh, on the whole, as I read the book, minus parts like Achan and that sort of thing. On the whole, though, I'm encouraged because Joshua is a good leader. Now, let me ask you, you come to this, the next book in the historical books, the book of Judges. You can turn over to chapter 1, Judges chapter 1. Now, how do you feel as you read this book? Oh, I know. You, yeah, this, is, this is the book you go to when you're discouraged, right? And you need some hope and encouragement. Go to the book of Judges, right? 
And you guys give me some feedback. At least shake your head, you know, do some big eyes, some frowning, move your forehead around. Do give me some gestures, something, something to work with here, okay, guys? Because otherwise, I don't know if you actually heard what I said because I'm being cheeky. I am being real cheeky at the moment. Of course you don't go to the book of Judges when you're discouraged. No, obviously not. Because, I mean, look at the very first verse in the book. It says, After the death of this good leader, Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of Yahweh, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Verse 2 says that Yahweh said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. <laughs> there you go. That's how the book starts. So again, it's about God's people, Israel, and the land. So they're still still fighting for the land. They haven't they didn't fully obey God. And so the people do well for a, a while, at least while there's a, a judge alive. And you'll see in the book of uh, Judges, there's this continual kind of a downward trend, a downward spiral going on in the book. There's a cycle going on. You have leaders that God raises up. The leaders die. The people rebel against God. They, they worship idols. So God has to bring another judge. And so there's just this, this continual cycle going on. Now, look at the very last verse in the book of Judges. This kind of sums it up quite well. If you want to know what the book of Judges is about, well, this verse kind of hits the nail on the head. Last, very, that last verse says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So how do you feel when you, you see those kind of verses? You read a book like that. How does it make you feel? A little different from Judges or Joshua, sorry. I'm quite discouraged reading that book. But then you come to the next book, the book of Ruth. <laughs> Are you encouraged or discouraged when you read the book of Ruth? Well, hopefully you're encouraged. And by the way, it's Ruth's taking, it's at the same time, because notice the very first verse. Same time as the book of Judges, because Ruth 1, verse 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So taking same time period as Judges. As I read the book of Judges, I'm encouraged again. Why? Because even though it's a terrible time period, this time of the judges, there's no king in Israel yet, nevertheless, we, we see faith in the midst of faithlessness. And even, we even see a Gentile, <laughs> Ruth, who is a Gentile. She's a Moabite. She's of the lineage of Ishmael. Remember Ishmael? Born to Abraham and Hagar. So she is from Abraham, but she is nevertheless considered a Gentile. And so God blesses even a Gentile woman. And if you look at the last verse in the book, it also tells you something. Something really important. 
don't miss this. The very last book and verse in the book of Ruth says that Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Woohoo! What does that tell you? Well, if you know your genealogies, you would know that Ruth is in Jesus Christ's lineage. Ruth is in Jesus' family tree. Wow, that's cool. Well, if you keep reading on, you come to these books of Samuel. There's two books of Samuel. And who's the main people you come to? Well, one of the first main characters, Bible characters you come to in the books of Samuel is Eli. How do you feel about Eli? Well, not good on the whole. (laughs) Then you come to uh, this guy named Saul, who becomes the first king of Israel. How do you feel about him? Again, on the whole, I'm I'm discouraged by Saul. And then you come to the second king of Israel, and, and his name is David, just mentioned here. How do you feel about him? Well, I kind of I'm a little bit mixed with David actually, but but on the whole I'm encouraged by David. And then you come to David's son Solomon. He's the third king of Israel. How do you feel about him? Well, I got a lot of mixed emotions about Solomon. I mean, guys, a some ways he's a mess, but nevertheless God used him to write some scripture. It's amazing the people God uses, isn't it? So I got mixed feelings about him. And so you come, you, you, if you keep going past these Samuel books, eventually you come to 1 Kings. And look what 1 Kings chapter 3 says about Solomon. 1 Kings 3, verse 3. Notice what the Bible says about Solomon in 1 Kings 3, 3. Solomon loved Yahweh. Really? Now, if you know your Bible, you might be questioning those words at the moment, but that's what it says. Solomon loved Yahweh, walking in the statutes of David his father only. What a terrible word, only. He sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Hmm. So what did he love? Well, (laughs) let's look at another verse. Look at uh, chapter 11. Because that says he loved Yahweh. Let's look at another one. Luke, or 1 Kings, 1 Kings 11, verse 1. Verse 1. <clears throat> now King Solomon loved Yahweh, right? Is that what it says? No. Sadly, it doesn't say that. It says that King Solomon loved many foreign women. And it mentions some of them. One was the daughter of Pharaoh. <laughs> but notice verse 2. Because it says, From these nations that are mentioned here, concerning which Yahweh had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. Why? For they surely will turn away your heart after their gods. Oh, but what did Solomon do? Solomon clung to these in love. Yeah, did he ever. In fact, look what verse 3 says. Not only did he have those mentioned in verse 1, 
because verse 3 said he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. Really? (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. That's what the Bible says. Which one did Solomon love the most? Because in chapter 3 it said Solomon loved Yahweh, but now it says he loved these wives of his and the concubines. Which one did he love most? Well, in the end he loved women more than God. Sadly, that's why I have mixed feelings about Solomon. And I hope you do too as you read about this guy. I hope you have mixed feelings as well. So, what's the point we're trying to make? Let's not lose sight of the big picture here. Is that we're trying to see what are these books telling us? What is this content? Remember two things. Content. It's about a people group and it's about their land. So it's about Israel and that promised land. And we see how that happens here in these books. But then you come to 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and it's not going so well in those books. In fact, it's so bad, we see how Israel lost the land. So we see how God gives them the land, we see how Israel lost the land. How did they lose it? Well, one word is idolatry. They were unfaithful. So the idolatry leads to destruction. It leads eventually to their captivity. They were warned about that. The prophets warned them. God sent his messengers. He was very merciful and gracious in sending messengers. But what did they do to his messengers? Well, we'll get there in a moment. But we see Assyria, the empire of Assyria, conquered the northern part of Israel in 722 B.C. And then Babylon defeats the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. So you have people like Daniel and others being carried off into captivity. And so that's where you get the the next books come from, because Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah tell us how Israel got the land back. So don't forget, it's all about Israel and the land that God gave them. Uh, Fortunately, they did get the land back. You know, Nehemiah, for example, was sent back by the king, sent back, and he rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. Ezra, by the way, was another one who went back, uh, but he he was primarily involved in the spiritual part of bringing them back. So, okay, that's the content. It's about Israel and their land, but what was the point of all of that? What was the point? Well, it's all about leadership. And you can tell it's all about leadership primarily in the very names of these books. They are mostly names of leaders. Guys like Samuel, the kings, for example. Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah, just to name a few. So in the end, we see, though, there's a problem with human leadership. Because we are sinful, what happens? We sin, and we die. We sin, and we die. And so there's a lesson to be learned in this. even for us today, that we should never put our trust in human leaders. That that goes for pastors, by the way, as well. Because pastors are sinners, and pastors die. Don't put your trust in them either. And so the whole function 
was to show here the, the need for a perfect king. The need for a perfect king. We come to the third genre in the Old Testament. It is the poetical books, obviously starting with Job, moving all the way to the Song of Solomon. Many consider Job to be the oldest, possibly the oldest book in the Bible, maybe the oldest book even in human literature. Israel's two greatest kings wrote most of these books, and of course I'm referring to David and Solomon. Uh, If you know your book of Psalms, you know David wrote approximately half of the Psalms. Solomon wrote most of the book of Proverbs, most likely wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, as well as the Song of Solomon. And what are the the guys writing about? What, What is the content of these books? Well, Psalms tells us, well, if you look at Psalms chapter 1, Psalm 1, sorry, Psalm 1, it's only one. Psalm chapter 1 is kind of, some have described it as the gateway into the Psalter. And it kind of gives you the big picture of the entire Psalter. And it's telling us that ungodly, uh, what, are, what are ungodly people like? And then, well, what are godly people like? In short, when you read, we'll look at Psalm 1 here, it tells us that ungodly people are not like God. (laughs) You're not like God. Because Psalm 1, verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Here's a godly person, though. His delight's in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and his leaf does not weather. All that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So that's a big picture of the entire 150 psalms. It's given us an overview of the whole book. You could say the theme of the book of Psalms is it's the way of walking by the Word of God. How how do you walk in the Word of God? What what is this way? What does it look like? Well, read the book of Psalms. Then you come to Proverbs. It's the book of wisdom. The book of wisdom. The word wise or wisdom is used 120 times in the book. So you could say the theme is the wisdom of this way that was introduced for us in the Psalter. And then you come to Ecclesiastes. Key word there, of course, is vanity or meaninglessness. You come to the end of the book, and it's summarized quite well. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. After Ecclesiastes is shown us the vanity of any other way than God's way. Of course, Solomon experimented with everything under the sun. And in the end, he found everything in doing it his way was just vanity. It was meaningless. And so that's why he says at the end of the book, in chapter 12, verse 13... 
the end of the matter. All has been heard. Here it is, my friends. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's Ecclesiastes. A lot of people wonder about the next book in the Bible, <laughs> the Song of Solomon. Man, what's this book about? Well, basically it's, it's talking about this devoted affection of a woman for her king. Of course, it's the Shunammite woman. You say, well, what's the point of all that content there? You know, it gets quite romantic, and unmarried people sometimes you know, feel a bit uncomfortable sometimes reading this stuff. So what's the function? Well, look at, uh, just look, look at verse 1. <laughs> the first two verses of the Song of Solomon says, well, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, and here's what uh, the Shunammite woman says. She says, Let him, that's Solomon, kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. There you go. It's lovey-dovey, romantic, juice, good juicy stuff going on here. Now, what I'm, what I'm, I just want you to know what I'm about to say is somewhat speculation on my part, okay? I don't actually have a chapter and a verse to, to prove this. Because I'm, I'm trying to figure out how do the poetical books kind of fit into what I'm, the, the flow that I've been trying to show you here. Here's what I'm wondering. When you think about the function of these books. you got Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Possibly revealing what the perfect king's going to be like when he actually comes. You read a lot about Jesus in uh, in the book of Psalms. Psalm 2, Psalm 22, just to name a few. So could it possibly revealing what the perfect king's going to be like when he finally is found? Maybe. Song of Solomon. Is it possibly revealing how we are going to feel when we finally find that king? There are many godly people who believe the book of the Song of Solomon, that is, pictures the relationship of Christ and His bride, the church. Of course, yes, it's talking about a real person and his real, a real woman and their relationship and what goes on there, but could there be some other stuff going on as well, possibly? And so the poetic section maybe is a subset of those historical books revealing what is the ideal king like? What does he look? What are, what are we longing for here? And then you come to the last section in the Old Testament, which of course is the prophetic books, starting with the prophet Isaiah, going all the way to that great Italian prophet, Malachi. No, that was another joke, really bad joke. Malachi. So we got a total of 17 prophets. Some have divided up into major and minor it doesn't mean important and unimportant. It just means big and small. So you have content here again with these. So look at Isaiah. You get an idea of the content just by looking at this one book alone. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. Isaiah 2, verse 1. Look at this. Remember, he's one of the prophets, one of the major prophets. And it says that the word of Isaiah... 
the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. What's that all about? (laughs) Some people get really confused reading a book like Isaiah. Well, one short answer is the content has to do with predictions. Or you could say, in other words, prophecies. Uh, Some of the prophecies were fulfilled in Christ's first coming. Some will be fulfilled in Christ's second coming. That's one reason why people... Some people get confused. So the prophets are are not just giving predictions. They're doing more than that. That's that's only one part of the content. Look at chapter 1. You'll see another thing going on here. Chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. So just think, what what is Isaiah doing here? Is God's messenger in verse 2. He says, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. In other words, I'm God's messenger. Listen to God's words. Here's what God says. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. So what's the point of that literature there? A little different from chapter 2. So it's not prophecy and prediction about things happening in the future, no. Let me put it this way. If you heard someone at a lectern or a pulpit speaking to you in this kind of language, what would you say that person is doing? You would say they're preaching. And that's exactly what Isaiah is doing. Isaiah is preaching. And so the prophets are not just about giving predictions about future events. It's not just predictions or prophecy. It's also preaching. Who are they preaching to? Well, the content of the prophets, you need to understand, needs to be woven into those historical books. So again, it's not chronological, woven into the historical books. Most of the Old Testament is chronological, except for the prophets. Here's one reason I can say that. For example, look at the very first verse in Isaiah. Because it tells you the time period of when Isaiah lived and he was preaching. It says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of... Notice these kings mentioned here. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. Notice they're all kings of Judah. So that that tells you the time period of when Isaiah is preaching and and giving these predictions. And if you look, let's just look at another one. Go over to Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah chapter 1. You'll see a similar thing with all the prophets. But look at Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of Yahweh came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. There you go. So Jeremiah is toward the end of, excuse me, the end of Judah before they're taken into captivity. You say, well, does this pattern hold up through the prophets? Well, for the most part, let's look at one of the minor prophets. The smaller books keep going through the major prophets into those big books of your Bible there into Hosea. So you go past Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Go past Daniel. Eventually you'll come to Hosea. And I want you to see this pattern holds up. It's giving you the time period and, and the content somewhat. What's going on? Hosea 1, verse 1 says, Hosea 1, 1, the word of Yahweh that came to Hosea the son of Beeri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash, king of Israel. There you go. That tells you the time period. So what are the prophets preaching about? Well, let me tell you about Hosea. I love this book. Interesting book. See, if you read the entire book of Hosea, you'd find out that God told Hosea to marry an adulterous woman. She was an unfaithful woman who did not keep her marriage vows. And even though the Bible says she was a prostitute, God told Hosea, a prophet of God, to go and marry her anyway. Later, she ends up leaving Hosea, sold herself into prostitution, but Hosea goes after her. (laughs) Amazing man. Ends up bringing her back out of the prostitution. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? Because that was all meant to be a picture. It was a picture. It was an object lesson, a very vivid HD, full HD, great colorful picture. What was it meant to show us? It was meant to show us God's loyalty. God was the faithful one. We are the unfaithful one. Israel's the unfaithful one. But God pursues the unfaithful and brings her back. God was faithful even though his people are unfaithful. And you say, well, okay, that's, that's a lot of prophets, 17 of them. So what was the point? What's the point? It's, like I just said, it's all about loyalty. It was all about God's faithfulness, His loyalty to His people, even when His people are unfaithful. 
So what were the prophets preaching? Well, God called for a commitment from His people. He expected them to be faithful. And He assured them of His loving kindness and His loyalty. Now, it would be really helpful if we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 5 to kind of understand the point of the prophets here. Go back to Deuteronomy, your fifth book in your Bible. Deuteronomy 5. If we go back here, we'll see that God made an old covenant. He made an old agreement. So please understand, this is the old agreement, the old covenant that God made with Israel. And here's what he says, Deuteronomy 5, verse 1. Verse 1. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Yahweh our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, or Mount Sinai. Not with our fathers did Yahweh make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. Yahweh spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. While I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire. You did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love or loyalty to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, there you go. So, they were to be loyal, steadfast love to God. Don't, don't worship anything else. There's only one God, so worship Him alone. So that's all part of this, this, this issue, why God made this agreement, this covenant. So, in Deuteronomy, you need to understand this is, do, do means to, Anomy is law, so it's the second giving of the law. And so what did God expect in this second giving of the law, in this, this agreement, in this covenant? Well, look at chapter 6, verse 4. Here's what God expects. Chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Well, that's what God expects. Not much, is it? <laughs> Actually, that's everything. That's a lot. Love God with all. Impossible to do, but that's what He expects. So I ask, if the point at issue is loyalty, and the prophets are preaching 
we must be loyal to this covenant God. Well, were the prophets successful? Were they successful? Well, it kind of depends on how do you define success, doesn't it? Well, to get the end of the story, you need to go back to the end of where Israel lost the land. And that's in the book of 2 Chronicles. So go to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. So 2 Chronicles is after the books of Samuel and Kings. Go past that. 2 Chronicles 36. And you can tell quite clearly here, were the prophets successful? Second Chronicles 36, verse 16. Verse 16 says, But, well, that word ought to give you a clue, but, they kept, that's Israel, kept, mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. There you go. Were the prophets successful? Not humanly speaking. Not humanly speaking. A lot of them died for just simply being God's messenger and being faithful. So something needs to be done. They're not successful. They couldn't do it. They need help since they can't do it. So the function of the prophets then shows us the need for a perfect prophet. Shows you the need for a perfect prophet. And so you come to the old end of your Old Testament. I want you to look at the last prophet and what it says. Because the last prophet, Malachi, gives a prophecy of the perfect prophet who would come. And so you finish the Old Testament, you should be longing for the perfect prophet to come. He hasn't come. These guys weren't perfect. They're sinners. They died. <laughs> we, have, we still haven't got the perfect prophet. So look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi 3, 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple... And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. So the prophecy, by the way, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But how long did they have to wait for the fulfillment of the prophecy? (laughs) At least 400 years. They had to wait a long time, 400 years approximately. And then I want you to notice how the Old Covenant ends. By Old Covenant, I just mean the Old Testament. Look at Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Here's how the Old Testament ends. You tell me, how do you feel as you read the last words of the Old Testament? Because verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and the awesome day of Yahweh comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 
But notice the very last word in the Old Testament. Some of your Bibles might say curse. So it is either curse or destruction, most likely. That's how the Old Testament ends. And then God's people have to wait 400 years for the reversal of this curse and destruction. <laughs> Not good news. Not good news. Kind of, They're kind of left hanging, so to speak. And so there's five characteristics of the Old Covenant. Not original with me, but here they are. Five characteristics of the Old Testament or Old Covenant. Number one, you have a lot of unkept laws. No one can keep them except Jesus. 613 laws, they were meant to crush our pride. <laughs> and they're really good at doing that if you understand their purpose. It shows us we can't keep them and we need the great law keeper. Number two, unavailing sacrifices. A lot of sacrifices. Remember, five main sacrifices. A lot of death. A lot of destruction. Looking forward to the great sacrifice. Number three, unsuccessful leaders. A lot of death. A lot of sin. A lot of a lot of stuff going on in those leaders, even the greatest of those leaders, like David. Even David was a sinner who murdered and committed adultery. And number four, there's unfulfilled prophecies. Some have been fulfilled. Some of them are referring to Christ's second coming, which leads you to the last one. You look at the Old Testament, by the time you finished, you ought to be longing for something greater, something better, more satisfying. You ought to be longing for Jesus. That is the whole point. And that's what Jesus taught those two guys as they were walking on the road to Emmaus. And so here's the summary of everything I just said in chart form or table. I put it on a table. My brain works in tables quite well. Maybe yours doesn't, but here's how mine works. So on the left, you have the genres, the different categories of the Old Testament, starting with the Pentateuch, then the historical books, the poetical books, and the prophetic books. Of course, there's your books in the second column. So let me remind you, what was the point at issue with those different genres? Well, in the, in the poetic, no, sorry, Pentateuch, <laughs> The point at issue was it's all about holiness. Over 200 times it talks about the word holy or holiness. God is holy. His people were to be holy. You are to be holy. Peter, by the way, quotes Leviticus chapter 11 when he says, Be holy as God is holy. You come to the historical books, it's all about leadership. That is the point at issue. But sadly, all those leaders were imperfect, they were sinners, and they died. You come to the poetical books. The point at issue is probably about wisdom. It's probably about wisdom. And then you come to prophetic books, it's teaching us that the point at issue is loyalty. Who are we to be loyal to? Of course, we're to be loyal to God. He's the only one worthy of our worship. So stop worshiping yourself. That's foolish. <laughs> You're not God. Right? So be loyal to God. Love Him with all. 
That's what the prophets were preaching and teaching. What's the function of the Old Testament? Well, you look at the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There's a lot about priests going on there and the sacrifices they were doing. And of course, none of those priests were perfect. And so the function was to cause us to long for the perfect priest. Praise God, Jesus comes on the scene and he is the perfect priest. Hebrews tells us he is the superior priest. There is no longer a need for sacrifices. He becomes our great high priest. The historical books show us that we need one who is a perfect king because even David and Solomon could not fulfill that. But Jesus comes as our, as our king, the one who is the perfect king, ruling and reigning in perfect justice and righteousness. Of course, that wasn't the primary purpose in his first coming, though, was it? But we long for his second coming. We long for his return when he will be set up as king and rule from Jerusalem. By the way, that was part of the problem with Jews. They confused his comings and therefore they got frustrated with Jesus, thinking that Jesus, the Messiah, is supposed to be this great king, but the great king comes and he dies. That's confusing. That doesn't look very kingly. He's not acting like the Messiah as far as they're concerned. And so that creates a problem. But if you understand his second coming, he will fulfill that, then it shouldn't be an issue. So what's the function of the, prophet, uh, the poetical books? Remember, we talked about hopefully we ought to be longing again for this perfect king. What does he look like? What's his way like? Well, those poetical books will help us. The prophetic books show us we ought to be longing for the perfect prophet. By the way, did you notice... Three offices here. Three offices. What do we have? We have a, a priest, a king, and a prophet. Nobody else in the entire universe can fulfill all three offices perfectly. Only Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ fulfills all three offices. And so my friend, at Christmas time, if, any, if you don't any other time of the year... Be longing for the perfect prophet, priest, and king. He came 2,000 years ago. The whole calendar revolves around him. He did come. And he maintains being our perfect high priest. One day, he is going to even reign from this earth as our king. Hmm. And he's the one who was the prophet Great teachings. Read about them in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He gave us great prophecies as well. And he's going to be fulfillment of those prophecies. So my friend, do you long for Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Are you being loyal to King Jesus? The one who is also your great high priest, who has given you great teachings that you need to follow? obey so my friends as you read your old testament there's your big picture god's structure of the bible is pointing to jesus that's what jesus said in luke 24 
It's all pointing to him. So don't miss him. Don't miss him. May God enable you to, to have your eyes opened to understand the scriptures as these two disciples on the, on the road to Emmaus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the scriptures. Would you open our spiritual eyes to behold wonderful things from your word? May we understand that it is pointing to Jesus. So we, we, we need your divine enabling to understand. There's a lot going on here. It's a big, awesome book, which we might consider hard to interpret sometimes, maybe a bit complicated. Sometimes people think there's contradictions, apparent contradictions. The way we see the unity. It was written by the Holy Spirit. We're thankful for the humans He used in their ways. And so, may we long for the perfect prophet, priest, and king, who of course is only fulfilled in Jesus Christ. May we love Him with all our heart, our mind, our soul, our entire being. May we be fully devoted. May our loyalty be to Him. May it not be divided. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.